Okay, thank you, Brother Dale. Let's uh, turn in our Bibles to our psalm. We've been looking at the last, uh, I think this is our third time in it, uh, Psalm 38. And uh, as we know in this, that David is in bad shape. Uh, the affair with Bathsheba and all of that kind of stuff is not the only time he was out of fellowship with God. He's like us. We can go in and out and the Lord dealt with him. And uh, he tells us about a time that we don't really know, as uh, we've told you before, what the circumstances were, but uh, he's in bad shape. I'd like to read starting at verse 1 tonight, and then we will focus in. I don't want us to lose the context of it. So Psalm 38, verse 1. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your wrath. Amen to that. Nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. He, lo- he hates sin, but he loves us. And David recognized that dichotomy. For your arrows pierce me deeply, and your hand presses me down. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your anger, nor my health, uh, nor any health in my bones because of my sin so we've got it nailed down as to what this is and what's happening there was no doubt about it this is because of some sin that David had committed number verse 4 for my iniquities there we have the confession again have gone over my head like a heavy burden they are too heavy for me my wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness there's another confession Verse 6, I am troubled, I am bowed down greatly, I go mourning all the day long. For my loins are full of inflammation, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and severely broken, I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. So this tells us that David, of course, is affected Physically, mentally, emotionally, as well as spiritually. Because sin doesn't just stop in one place. You know, whenever you have uh, a cancer diagnosis, if you can catch it early when it's encapsulated, before it is spread, you have a much better chance of surviving. And if you think of sin, it's kind of like a cancer. It never just stays in one place until it's dealt with. It spreads and it affects every part of our life and all of our life and it's evident other people can see it even when we can't so let's think about this a little bit of review whenever you backslide uh, you give up time and opportunity Uh, you get out of fellowship with God and there are just some doors that are open that won't be open again later on now they may be and God can open them up it's not entirely hopeless But there are some things that are kind of a one-time only thing that God said, here's your opportunity, but we weren't walking with him. We weren't walking in the spirit, as Paul says in Galatians, walking in the flesh. And so we went by it, and that door may never be open again. And think about this, the amount of time you spend in sin, out of fellowship with God, well, you're never going to get that back. You've only got so many ticks of the clock allotted to you so many pages of the calendar allotted to you and uh, you don't want to waste that time and it's a tremendous waste of time to live it in sin right 
And so uh, not only do you give up time and opportunity, but you forfeit joy. Joy is a part of the fruit of the Spirit, remember? And uh, if we're not walking in the Spirit, we don't display the fruit of the Spirit or have the benefit of it, not in the measure that we should have. And then also understand when you backslide, you suffer consequences. God, as we have said all through this, He loves you, but He hates your sin. And that thing that uh, about the arrows, we said that God gets militant against the sin in our lives, and He doesn't shoot it with a shotgun or a scatter gun. It's pinpointed with an arrow. God attacks the sin in our lives because He loves us. But let's not fool ourselves into thinking that that's not painful. It is a painful thing to be dealt with by the Lord, even if it is for our good. And then the other thing, uh, when we backslide, here's the deal that a lot of people don't count on. you got to return. you got to come back. Now, when I was uh, having uh, all of my trouble with my heart failure, I would go out and I would walk. And when I first started walking with that, it was very difficult Difficult to breathe. I was very weak and had trouble with it. And whenever I would go out and I would walk in our neighborhood, I had to keep in my mind that however far I went, I had to come back. And so if I walked until I just couldn't take another step, I would be in trouble. Sammy would have to, you know, get our van that we had at the time and she'd have to come find me and uh, cart me back home. And uh, that's the one thing that we never think about when we go into sin. Oh, whee, here we go. And I'm enjoying this, and it's fun, and I'm doing, but it wears us out. And the joy of the Lord is our strength. When we lose our joy, we lose our strength, don't we? And so what happens is we, we get to the point where we say, Oh, Lord, I can't go on anymore. It's a good place to be, by the way. And we think that we're just going to instantly confess our sin and be right back where we started. No, you gotta, you got to come home. you got to walk that road. Now, the Lord may give you a shortcut. He may give you grace and power to take steps that you didn't think you could uh, take to get back. But many times, it is extremely difficult. And so, uh, in the verses we're going to look at in just a little bit... Uh, we're going to talk about the road back home because David seems, as we get down to, I believe it's verse 9, he seems to kind of make a change. He seems to be turning around and heading in the right direction. But before we do that, I want to talk about another person who strayed away. And I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles and look at this. Luke 15, verse 11. Luke 15, 11. And we're just going to read about the prodigal son. That's what he did. He was in a good place. He had a good position. He had a good family. He had good resources. And he just blew and squandered it all because he wanted to do what he wanted to do. So this is Jesus' parable about the prodigal. Uh, maybe we should entitle it more about the loving father, the patient father, the gracious father. But we know it as the prodigal son. But it's really not so much about him as it is about the father. And it says in uh, verse 11, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Now he should have waited until his father died to receive that. So basically what is he saying to his father? I wish you were dead. 
I don't really respect you. I don't want to be around you. And I want what's coming to me at your death. Kind of a snotty kid right there. And so uh, the father divided his property between them, the two sons. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, uh, a severe famine rose in the country in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. That's a great job for a Jewish kid, isn't it? And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. Boy, that's dire straits, isn't it? Now look what happened. But when he came to himself, interesting phrase, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough, to, uh, more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. This is just so wonderful. But while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and felt not anger, but what? Compassion. Compassion. And ran and embraced him. Can you imagine how he stunk? Can you imagine what he was like? Embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, here's his speech, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but... That great word of contrast. But the father said to his servants, completely ignoring the speech, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that wonderful? Do you realize that whenever you are away from the Lord, whenever you stray, whenever you sin, whenever you backslide, whatever word you want to use, that when you confess your sin and come back to the Lord, that He runs to meet you, that He celebrates all of that. He's not reluctant to forgive you, but He is joyous in forgiving us. And this is the picture that we see right here. And so really it's not so much about the son. The son could not do anything for himself. But the father could restore him. Put a robe on him. Put a ring on him. Put the shoes on him. Kill the fatted calf. Let's go celebrate. This is my son. Now I want you to uh, consider that the prodigal coming home. This is not necessarily an easy thing he had a process that he had to go through on this think about this he was starving 
He was wanting to eat the pig's food, those carob pods that grow in Israel. And uh, it wouldn't have done him a whole lot of good because his stomach would not have digested those very well. He's hungry. They would, not, they would satisfy a pig, but they won't satisfy the sun. And so many times we stray into the world and the world says, Oh, come over here and eat some of these. These things are great. But they'll satisfy a pig, but they won't satisfy a child. Okay, And this is what's happening here. And he finds out the hard way that there's no relief in that. He can't eat the pigs. He's a good Jewish boy. Well, somewhat good anyway. And he can't eat the pig's food because it's not made for him. That's not what he is used to. And that's not what is going to sustain him. So he goes through this process. And now he is starving. And he remembers, in my father's house, the servants... The slaves have more than enough bread. I can't possibly go back to my father now because he has squandered all the money. Now keep in mind, the way that they had uh, their inheritance then was in land. The land that had been given to them by Joshua when they came into the promised land. And what this son was doing, basically when he received his inheritance of land, he sold the land to strangers, took the cash... And ran off. So the family has lost part of their farm, part of their pasture, part of their land, part of the value of their estate. And this guy has gone and lived a prodigal life, a riotous life. And uh, later on, as you read in the story, he was using it on prostitutes and all kinds of things like that. Now he's got to come home. Talk about coming home with your tail tucked between your legs. He's an abject failure. He is dirty. He's been keeping pigs. Everybody has forsaken him. He stinks and he has absolutely nothing, not to mention what he has cost the family. No wonder the older brother was ticked off, right? I kind of understand that. Not saying he was right. I'm just saying I kind of understand. How would you receive a brother who had done all of that? Now your inheritance has shrunk by at least half. What are they going to do now when Pop dies? Divide a smaller portion? That's what the older brother's thinking. How dare you? How dare you? But look at the gracious father. Put a robe on his back, put shoes on his feet, put a ring on his finger, and let's throw a party. My son is back, and that's all he could think about. The older brother wanted him, wanted dad to think about all the things that the son had wasted. The father saying, that doesn't matter. He's back. He's worth more than my farm is. He's worth more than the land. Let's have a party. He's back. I thought he was dead. I thought I'd never see him again is what that means. And no wonder the older son is just resentful and all of that. But the dad says, none of that matters. None of that is important. The important thing is that he is back. Have you ever thought about the fact that God welcomes you back after you fall into sin? That God welcomes you back in the manner like this father does? This is his son after all. And you're his child as well. And in spite of what you've done, we come back and, Oh, Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your child. You never were worthy in the first place. The worthiness is in Christ. So don't worry about that. 
And remember that Jesus has paid for your sins and your father is enthusiastic about welcoming you home and forgiving your sins. Now that's not the view of God that most of us have. Most of us have the view of God where he's standing there with a baseball bat or a whip and he's going to say, you're going to get it now. And that son would have deserved it and we deserve it too. But this is a gracious, merciful, loving father that we are talking about. And Jesus tells this story to say, God's not what you think and not like what you think. He's different than you have imagined him to be. Different than the Pharisees have portrayed him. This is a kind and loving God. And we see that acted out in John chapter 21. After Peter has denied the Lord and gone back fishing, he sinned twice. Then when he sees the Lord on the lakeshore, the Lord is not standing there again with a whip or a club or anything like that. He's made breakfast for Peter. This is a loving, merciful God, and we've got to get that point. Now, David, at the first of this psalm, he's terrified that God, because he hates sin, is going to beat up on David in the midst of his anger, and David knows he can't stand that. And so... Uh, we have the privilege of knowing kind of the rest of the story. Now, while this boy is on his way home, just consider this. He's starving in the pig pen. So when he's walking home, all of a sudden he has food? No. He's starving on the way back home. Food did not magically appear. And all of a sudden, when he took that first step back home, all of a sudden his belly was full. He was just as hungry, maybe even more so. I don't know how long his journey was, but I know he was walking, and I know that he was expending energy as he was going home. And can you imagine, as he is on his way home, the father runs to him because the son couldn't possibly run to the father. The son is starving to death. The son is weak. The son is barely able to put one foot in front of the other. And all of a sudden now, the father is losing all of his dignity as a wealthy nobleman. And he uh, pulls up his robes and exposes his feet and his ankles, which a rich man would never do. And he runs to his son. And people were going, what in the world is going on? How disgraceful. That is shocking. Can you believe he would do that? And when he gets to his son, some of the people there are probably thinking, well, now that boy is going to get it. He's going to be told, no, you cannot come home. No, you cannot have an audience with me. No, you cannot be on the property and maybe exile him for 30 days or something like that. Maybe he'll order him to have 30 lashes or something like that because that's what that boy deserves. And he's got to learn his lesson. Can you imagine when they saw the old man not only running, but then the old man comes up and he hugs him? And then he kisses him. He's nasty, dirty, foul. He's an embarrassment. He is everything you could think of that he should have been rejected, pushed away, and punished. And the old man just takes him and hugs him and kisses him. And then he takes him and says, get the best robe, the best robe, and put it on him. He doesn't need to look like a beggar anymore. Put shoes on his feet because noblemen's sons did not go barefoot. They had shoes and put a ring on his finger. He is somebody because he is my child. That's exactly the opposite of what all of the townspeople and family members would have expected out of this father. Now we've got to 
get this and we've got to understand that Jesus is telling us a story about our father. And David, as he writes about all of this, he sees everything through the lenses of his failure, his sin, and how badly God hates sin, but he doesn't really see a merciful, loving God, does he? And so this man is coming back, the son is coming back, and he's enduring the hardship of the trip, the starvation, the hunger that he has, the weakness that he feels. Not to mention, as he comes back from that foreign country, some of those people that see him walking back to the father's house were probably some of the people he got drunk with, some of the people that he uh, consorted with prostitutes with, and all of that. Now what are they saying about him? They're making fun of him, they're laughing at him, they're pointing at him as he's heading back home. And you can only imagine what it's like when he came back into his Jewish town where everybody knew him. And can you imagine as they knew his story, they're pointing at him, they're laughing, they're ashamed of him, they're embarrassed by him, they're waiting for him to get what he's got coming to him, the ridicule and all of that. And I take it from the way he planned his speech and the way that he gave his speech, he had no idea that his father was going to be kind. He had no expectation of getting any mercy. He had absolutely no way to think that there would be anything good that would happen to him. In fact, he hoped against hope that he could just be living like a slave and just at least have enough to eat. Boy, did he ever get a big surprise. Has God ever surprised you? Have you ever felt his mercy and grace in ways that you never thought you would? His love and his care? Those times when you go, oh Lord, I don't deserve this. And the Lord says, that's not even an issue. Of course you don't. What do you want? What are you asking for? And we find out that he provides for us, that he cares for us in spite of who we are. And uh, this is what we see when we look at this whole thing. This boy had a long journey to go home. Well, that's what, as we look back in Psalm 38 and start uh, reading at verse 9, this is what we're covering tonight. Lord, all my desire is before you. And my sighing is not hidden from you. Verse 10. My heart pants. My strength fails me. As for the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. My loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague. And my relatives, those that ought to be helping you, stand far off. Verse 12. Those also who seek my life lay snares for me. And those who seek my hurt speak of destruction and plan deception all day long. Well, he's in bad shape. Now, number one, I want you to notice that uh, whenever somebody starts on the road home, whenever they start getting right with God, it's not uh, gumdrops and lollipops. It's hard. It's hard. Why don't more people get right with God? Because it's not easy. Because it's humiliating. Because you have to turn around and admit you were wrong. You have to detach from the lifestyle and the situation you were in. And it clings to you and it holds on to you 
like an octopus. And you have to break free. And you have to start heading back. And the road is long. And the road is narrow. And the road is hard. And you are weak. It's very, very difficult. So how does a person start on the road to getting right with God? And I think what we find here in uh, David in this psalm gives us a clue in how we need to see ourselves when we're getting right with God and also when we pray for other people. You got anybody that you pray for regularly that needs to get right with God? If you do, say amen. Why don't they just do it? Because it's hard. Because it's difficult. Because it's embarrassing. Because it's humiliating. Even if they're to the point to where they don't want to do it anymore. Not everybody is completely in love with their sin. There are plenty of people out there that say, I wish I could get right. I wish I could stop. There are a lot of addicts that they've gone to uh, AA or something similar to that multiple times and they still can't kick the habit. Seems like it ought to be easy. Just do different. Just decide to be different. But it's not that they have a hold of that addiction. That addiction has a hold of them. And they try to break away. And they try to break free. And it is just not an easy thing. You need to really pray for them. And minister to them any way that you can. Because the first thing that has to happen is mental. The realization that nothing is hidden. Oh Lord, all my desire is before you. You know what I really want. You know what I really want. You know, sometimes it's easy to say, Oh Lord, I pray you would do this, and Oh Lord, it'll be all for your glory, and I'll give you all the praise. As if God goes, Oh, well, okay. And for us, you know what it really is? Bottom line is, I want it. Now, if I have to praise you to get it, I'll do that. But the praise is not really the big deal. The big deal is me. I want it. And so sometimes we're like spiritual toddlers. I think it was last week that I said that uh, thing I saw on Facebook one time. Hell hath no fury like a toddler who wanted the orange sippy cup instead of the green one. That's the way we are. And we've learned how to say the right things, the spiritual things. But here's the truth of it. If we're ever going to get right with God and walk with Him, we have to come to the place to know that nothing is hidden from Him. It doesn't matter what flowery words you use. It doesn't matter how spiritual you try to make it. The Lord knows your desire. Whether your desire is to truly get right with Him, whether your desire is to be back where you belong with Him, or whether your desire is simply to get what you want and to have an easy life. And so in the meantime, you just throw up a few words of praise. And you throw up a few words that make it look spiritual and sound spiritual. And the Lord knows everything about you. And he even says, my sighing is not hidden from you. What's the deal about sighing? You are a little kid and you're watching your favorite TV show. And uh, your mom comes in and says, I need you to get up right now and go to your room and, and make your bed. And you go, you roll your eyes and go, <sighs> why do you do that? Because you're so happy to please your mother? No, you don't really want to do it. And David, as you read this, He's saying, you know where my desires are. It's kind of like Peter when the Lord is asking him, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And finally Peter goes, Lord, you know all things. 
you know I love you. And uh, this is where David is. I can't hide anything from you. I can't go offer a bunch of cattle and sheep and, and have you go, oh, well, maybe David's not so bad after all. Nothing changes that situation. David's got to get right with God. And so he comes before the Lord into confession. Lord, you know where I am. You know what I'm thinking. You know everything about me. You know, if we could just be honest before God, it would do us good we would do better if we would do that. But we try to play the spiritual games and we try to cover it up and we try to make it, well, of course, I want to do this for God's glory and God's honor. And, and sometimes we need to just be honest. Lord, you know. And you know where I am and you know how insufficient my desire is and my sighing because I get tired of doing this. I don't always like to do what you want me to do. I wish I did, but I don't. And there are times when the Lord puts me in situations just like he does you that I would never have chosen. And if I weren't stuck in it, I wouldn't do right. But there's some expectations and so maybe I do it, but it's like a little kid. <sighs> you know, nobody sees that. It's an inner thing, but God knows, doesn't he? God knows that time when you read your Bible and you really don't want to. God knows when you come to church on a Wednesday night and you really don't want to. God knows all of that. It's not hidden from Him. Psalm 139, verses 1 through 4. O Lord, You have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways, for there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Boy, that's a comprehensive knowledge, isn't it? You can't fool God. You can't snow God. You can't cover up what's really wrong. God knows. Sometimes we had an associate pastor in Tuttle, and his wife was pregnant, and they took her into the hospital. And this is in the mid-90s, so it's not like it was in ancient times. They had technology. They had all of the things that they uh, have now, sonograms and all of that. And do you know, uh, they delivered the baby, and uh, the nurse took the baby away to clean it up, or the father did, pardon me, and he was going to show them you know, through the glass like they used to do to all of the family members. And all of a sudden, the nurse panics. She says, there is another baby in here. And they had unexpected twins. Can you imagine such a thing? And somehow in all of the things that they did, the only thing they can think of is maybe one twin was on top of another, so they only saw one heartbeat. So shock. All the way around, it was a shock. Did you know that whatever is going on in your life, that never happens to you? Because God knows everything about you. He even knows what's going to come out of your mouth. The words coming out of your mouth before you've even thought of those words. He knows you and he comprehends you all together. He knows everything about you. He knows your good things. He knows your sin. He knows your victories. He knows your defeats. He knows your besetting sins. All of those kind of things. And whenever we get to the point where we realize that what we have done and tried to hide, what we have done and covered up, we may have done it with people, but we will never be able to do it with the Lord. And that's what it means when the prodigal son, it said he came to himself. 
he came to the realization, I'm not fooling anybody. And I've got to get back home to my father. I've made a mess out of everything. And that's where getting right with God first starts. And you might as well, because he knows it anyway. Number two, we uh, start on the road back home when negatives outweigh the perceived benefits of sin. See, the prodigal son and David himself here, they did not go into sin saying, I think I will do this and it'll be the worst year of my life. I think I will do this so that I can be mentally messed up, emotionally messed up, spiritually messed up, and uh, oh, if I'm really lucky, it'll even destroy my health. Nobody does that. They go into it because it looks like it's going to be beneficial. I'll just do it just this once. Well, everybody's got to live a little, and everybody's entitled to one mistake, and God will forgive, and it'll be okay, and oh, the worst one of all, I can handle it. Famous last words. Yeah. I may have that put on my tombstone. I don't know. I thought I could handle this. Uh, that's what we do in our pride, don't we? So David's in trouble. The prodigal son was in trouble. And all of a sudden, the riotous living, I think it says in the King James Version, that the prodigal was doing. Oh, and now he's out of money. And his friends have all gone. Now he's with the pig pen in the field. Oh, and even the pig food is looking really, really, really good at that point. You know what made him say when he came to himself, I'm going to go home to my father? Because all of the negatives of his sin started outweighing the perceived benefits of sin. Now, there never were any real benefits to his sin, were they? Were there? But he thought they were. And we always fool ourselves into thinking... Boy, it'll just, my brother said one time when he got off of the bus, when he was a little kid, there was a girl that lived next door to us, and he came in the house just fuming, and he said, I just want to smash her face. And uh, my mom goes, Jeff, calm down. You know we don't talk like that. And he goes, you don't understand. I just want to bust her face one time. She said, uh, son, we don't uh, hit girls like that. He goes, just one time. And she says, do you know what will happen to you when your father hears about this, when he gets home? He says, you don't understand. It'll be worth it if I can just smash your face one time. Okay? That's the way we all feel about things. If I can just say this or do this or act like this or lose my temper or whatever, I've got a right and it'll feel good, and they deserve it. And, uh, you know, we play that kind of game. Well, we look at this and we see that the negatives in David's life have sure outweighed the positives, hasn't it? My heart pants. His heart's not functioning right. My strength fails. Maybe it was a form of heart failure or something. And as for the light of my eyes, it also is gone from me. He's not seeing real clear. Now, it's hard to tell that that's a true physical loss of eyesight, or maybe he's talking about his spiritual eyes. I just don't see things, situations clearly. I don't make judgments right. I'm not thinking clearly. In the book of Hebrews 11.25, when it talks about Moses, it says, Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy Look at this, the passing pleasures of sin. It, it just runs out. It doesn't deliver everything 
that it promises, plus God gets involved as a loving father. In Psalm 32, 3 and 4, another time when David uh, is writing here about after his adultery with Bathsheba, he says, When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. In other words, it just is not the consequences. God gets involved. God gets involved. And it is, you can't handle that. Number three, the road back home is uh, a road sometimes of separation and isolation. David said in verse 11, My loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague, and my relatives stand afar off. That's a terrible feeling when you go through something and you feel like you're going through it alone. But that may be of God, because that may be what motivates you to head back home to your father. If there are people there comforting you and telling you everything's okay, eh, you might just stay there. But no, the prodigal was alone. He didn't have anybody to talk to except the pigs. And uh, so when he came to himself, he said, I'm heading back home. And on the way back home, I don't think he got a lot of attaboy. Praise God, you're doing the right thing. Man, we're all for you. Got a feeling it was everything but that. Every step was difficult and everything that he heard was discouraging. Where never is heard a discouraging word. I bet that wasn't true for him. And I bet it wasn't true for David either. And when you think about the prodigal son, friends, and others, even relatives, standing aloof, standing back from him, they weren't excited about the prodigal coming home at all. And that's kind of the way we are. We hold people at an arm's distance. In Hosea chapter 3, verse 4 and 5, it says, For the children of Israel shall abide many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return, mean return from exile to Israel, and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. I want you to think about this. Everything Israel despised and hated and rebelled against was gone and wiped out when the Babylonians came in and took care of the king and destroyed the temple. Now you don't have any of that. But they weren't happy, were they? And they longed for it. And in Babylon, where they were because of their sin, they would take Passover and go, next year in Jerusalem. Really? You didn't care much for it before. You despised those feasts before. You, you got wearied. You got burned out on all of them before. Now you want it? How many times have you experienced that? You don't know what you've got till it's gone. Yeah. And sometimes sin takes it away from us. So all that they rejected, they now wanted. And to them, rebellion was freedom. But now they found out it's not. It's chains. And now they're ready to submit. And that's what it means when they go back to David. I'm going to go back and I'm going to bow before the king. Uh, a king is cool now. We want a king. And we want the law of God. And we want the temple. And we want our feasts. We want all that back now. Because it was gone from them. I wonder how many things the prodigal son thought about. And goes, man, all those things I hated that dad used to make us do. I'd give anything if I could do that now. I'd give anything if I could do that. 
Number four, the road back home. Their enemies are unrestrained. I thought it was interesting. His friends and his relatives are aloof and hanging back. But boy, the enemy's not. Verse 12, those who seek my life lay snares for me. They don't have any trouble getting to David, do they? And those who seek my hurt speak of destruction. Boy, they're bold. And plan deception all the day long. Isn't that interesting? The people that could help you can't get to you or won't get to you. But boy, the enemy, here they come. And everything trips you up. And you hear all of their negativity and all their destruction. The thief comes only to kill, steal, and destroy, Jesus said. And uh, man, do you ever hear it? And do they ever let you know what they are trying to do? You see, the protection when we fall into sin, the protection God gives is forfeited. In Isaiah chapter 59, verse 19, So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west, And his glory from the rising of the sun. And when the enemy comes in like a flood. The spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. You know we uh, think that when we put on our armor. Boy I'm really fighting. God really needs me. No it's actually he is the one who gives you the power. And only he can defeat the enemy. You can't. That's done in him and by him. Right. That's what we forfeit. In Job chapter 1 verse 10. Satan says about Job, Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. Uh, You know, that was saying basically, He only serves you because you protect him. Take the hedge away and let me at him, and then you'll find out what Job is really like. You know what was amazing? The Bible says in the book of Job, in all these things, Job did not sin. What a guy. What a guy. But notice that thing. He had a hedge around him. And at that point, God didn't sin, but he did lift up the hedge. What does God do in those times when we do sin and backslide? Knowingly, willingly backslide. It's not a false step like in Galatians chapter 6. It's a willing transgression. I think the enemy comes through the hedge and we find ourselves being eaten alive by those who want to destroy us. Is this making sense tonight? You seeing it on the road back home? So whenever we pray for people to get right with God, maybe we need to think a little bit more about our prayers. This isn't easy. So what will it take and when will you get serious and how far does it have to go? That's a good question, isn't it? The quicker you repent, the better it's going to be. In James chapter 4, verse 8, it even gives us a promise. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And uh, that's what we need to do. Think about that. Like the prodigal son's father, when we take a step toward God, He runs to us. That's an amazing thing. But let's think about this. How can you pray for a backslidden believer? Maybe it's somebody in your Sunday school class. Maybe it's somebody in your family. Maybe it's a neighbor that you know. How do you pray for all of them? Let me give you some ideas. Pray for them that the Lord would expose their sin and bring conviction 
to them. Because as long as they can cover it up, as long as they can hide it, as long as they can play the church game, the Christian game, and all's right with the world, and I've got a big smile on my face, and I'm just happy, and God's really blessing me when they're torn up on the inside. The sooner they can get over that, the better it's going to be. So you can pray for that. Dear Lord, expose that. Bring that out to where they have to deal with it before you. Let them know that you know and that nothing is hidden from them. Also, pray for the consequences of chastisement and the consequences of sin to weigh them down. Sounds cruel, doesn't it? But the prodigal son didn't come home until he got desperate. And a lot of the people you're praying for, they're not going to come home until they get desperate. Pray that God would weigh them down on that and make it obvious as to why it's happening. Pray for God to separate them from the uh, ungodly and remind them of the Lord's faithfulness, mercy, and love. The prodigal son lost all of his friends when his money was gone. He didn't have anybody but the pigs. But he thought of his father, and when he thought of his father, he started heading home. He didn't know what he was going to get, but boy, did he get a whole lot more than he bargained for. And that's what these that we're praying for need to know as well. They need to be weighed down by their sin and then overwhelmed by the goodness of God whenever they return. And also pray that God would bring circumstances to bear in their life that cause them to return to the Lord's protection. I'm tired of the enemy having his way with me. I'm tired of the destruction of the enemy coming my way. I'm going to go back to my father where the hedge of protection is, where he comes in and his spirit raises a standard against them on my behalf, and I can find safety with him and with my father. Don't you see that, the parallels that go on like that? And that's what we need to think about whenever we pray for our people. Can we pray together? Do you have anybody on your heart? If you do, say amen. You know, I'd say their name. Why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes? Pray for those things to come upon them and to work in their life. Don't just say, oh Lord, bring them home. Let's, let's get down to business now. Lord, expose what they're going through. Let the consequences of sin weigh heavy upon them so that they know what to do. Make this to be crystal clear that this is you and that their problem is not their circumstances. They've got to get right with you. So, Father, as we think about people, got names on my mind. I'm sure everybody in here has some names on their mind, too. And it might even be uh, this is applicable for us. Father, we pray that you would bring prodigals home. We pray, Lord, that you would restore families and relationships. And even in our own church, people that have fallen away, people that don't seem to care, we pray for them and we pray these things over them that they might be convicted of their sin, that they might think of you. And we don't ask so much that they return to us or to our church. We pray that they would return to you and then you can put them wherever you want them and do with them whatever pleases you because you're merciful, loving, and kind. We pray, Father, for their protection spiritually because they're vulnerable. We pray for them, Lord, to uh, see things and let the 
benefits of sin fall away and let the consequences come upon them so that like the prodigal they turn around and say I'm going back to my father let that be true for our children let that be true for our grandchildren let that be true for our brothers our sisters may that be true for our parents may that be true for people that we know and love in our neighborhoods and even in our church father we're asking you to do a gracious loving and yet severe and serious work in the lives of people who think that they can trifle with you and forgive us when we do that in jesus name amen